We are starting, though, checking in with Scott Maxwell, who is the Executive Director with Wounded Warriors Canada. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on, Jill. Well, thank you, because we wanted to talk more about uh, the issue uh, with a lot of veterans who are homeless and who need help in that in that regard. So we wanted to start by talking about that and how big of an issue or concern is homelessness when we're talking about veterans? Well, I think, as we always say, one one homeless veteran is one too many. Uh, the numbers, while hard to pinpoint exactly, there's been reports of over 100 just in in Vancouver, an area alone that have been identified through outreach in the community. You know, we don't necessarily support homeless veterans directly as a mental health service provider here, but obviously our effort in the work that we do is to prevent any veteran situation from getting to a point where they find themselves homeless. And I would imagine too, like you're you're saying, not with even without direct support, there would likely be some overlap or some. When we're talking about mental health issues, uh, sadly, we do often talk about homelessness as well. Absolutely, um, the the fact that another story that was out this week in the lead up to Remembrance Day was the was the fact that Veterans Affairs Canada has a backlog of twenty five thousand veterans awaiting disability claim adjudication. Uh, that's that is just unacceptable, right? I mean, these are disability awards, financial compensation benefits they're entitled to that that often impact housing, quality of life from a physical and mental health perspective when it comes to paying bills and receiving care um, that we know and we've seen through pathways to things like uh, homelessness can can impact the situation of these veterans and ultimately potentially end up in these situations. So we got to work back from the problem. The problem is, in this case, homelessness. Let's work back and try to get at this much earlier in that in that process of one leaving the Department of National Defense and entering Veterans Affairs Canada. When you talk about that backlog as well of that staggering number, and I know there have certainly been criticisms of the Veteran Affairs Minister and there have been calls for that minister to retire, but do we have any idea at this point what has caused such a large backlog and why are these claims not being processed? It's a great question. Uh, this is really beyond the minister. This has a, a been a, a decade-plus-long government issue uh, we've now, I think we've had over, we've had over almost a dozen vet, Veterans Affairs Canada ministers in two different gov- governments that have been a- unable to fix it. it. You know, to us, it's all about making, uh, prioritizing what you want to do and planning to to make it to make it different and to change it. And that's hiring full time case management staff, not trying to part time and piecemeal this from a human resource perspective at Veterans Affairs Canada. Um, I, I don't know how any, anybody working in any business would not see a, a backlog of something you need to deal with staggering at 25,000 people and not think we've got to come up with a big human resource uh, uh, solution to this problem. So starting there, adjudicating claims as fastly as, we, as quickly as we possibly can, because we know and see the outcomes of this is downstream. If this is not done right, gaps form. This is a huge gap we're talking about in a couple of different areas. And, and unfortunately, veterans fall in them and their families for that matter. So, you know, just, we just got to get at this a lot, a lot more seamless, a lot more efficient and a lot more effective. 
Uh, and looking at some of, of the reasons that we're seeing the homeless population and veterans and, and trying to figure out, and, and like you said, certainly a connection or a link with mental health and, and mental health and wellness, but also do we not pay enough attention, do you think, to uh, veterans who are transitioning back to civilian life or returning from service? And, and like you talked about with the support services, just not having those supports to make that transition back, to make it a, a healthy one. That's just it. I think you hit the, that's it right there, Jill. I, I think if we're not looking at it from that, that level, early intervention is key, no different than any other form of life with anything to do with health. Uh, if someone is medically releasing, they're leaving D&D, they're going into Veterans Affairs Canada, we got to make sure that that is a, a much more effective and efficient process than, the, that it, than it is. I mean, another news story that was out today is that Veterans Affairs Canada potentially is overestimating how many veterans we have in Canada by, by over 156,000. So if we're not even sure how many veterans we have in Canada, how can we be sure that we're doing the right thing to take care of them? So to me, this is to us, to me, this is where this starts. Right at, at the moment someone becomes a vet, you know, into the, uh, veteran, into the Veterans Affairs Canada system. And if they're entitled, if they have claims in for disability benefit awards and, and programs and services, get them those services as fast as we possibly can and then work down from there. How much is uh, do we rely on then agencies as well? So if we take it out of Veteran Affairs, if somebody's waiting, they're on this yep. list and they can't, how much do we depend then on organizations like Legions and other organizations like yours that, that can hopefully or, or have to kind of step in and fill in those gaps? Yep, they are the front line when it comes to community health. Uh, and wellness and you know they're all, they always have needed to exist they're always going to need to exist there will always be gaps in a government agency and a system we understand that uh so that's what we're here to do and and so, but we you know a we can work closer and better together with government agencies if they're so willing to to work hand in hand um we have there, that need for us exists that we work closely with community providers that are dealing with homeless veterans they work closely with us to make sure that if a homeless veteran is dealing with an operational stress injury like PTSD, that they get over and into care through programs like ours. So, there, you know, there is integration at the system level, but I think there is a bit of disintegration at the system level when it comes to the government of Canada. And I know we're talking about this today, obviously, because today is Remembrance Day. But is it also a struggle in that for for talking about it or making sure that this is getting enough attention the other 364 days of the year? That's just it. Uh, that we this is what we do uh, full on 365, you know, the round the clock year round. So this is not this is a great time um, to remember and honor our fallen honor the service of our veterans and those currently serving and their families. It also draws a lot of attention, education, and awareness to the need that exists because we're all we're, we're mindful to honor the fallen, but help the living that is that is here with us uh, year round that need that need a lot of care and a lot of support. And I mean, we know Canada is behind them. We wouldn't exist as an organization without without Canadians, their ability to help us do what we do and and want to drive awareness about the problems. So you know, it's a whole of Canada approach and it's, it's really working in a lot of areas. Hence why, you know, we're talking today 
and and people want to be part of the solution to the problems that exist. And Scott, I wanted to touch on as well, if we can, kind of the the changing face, if you will, of veterans. And again, we're we're hearing from so many people today during Remembrance Day ceremonies, and and I'm hoping that we're going to be able to play uh, some audio of uh, a man who's turning 111 next month and talking about uh, his service and and what uh, what what he wants to to point out. But when we talk about kind of newer veterans and veterans that that are are not linked to World War II, uh, do are people understanding enough of of what we're dealing with, of what veterans are dealing with, and what kind of veterans of today look like? I think so. I I, I say that very personally and, and kind of humbly, honestly, because of the support we receive for the work that we do from Canadians from coast to coast to coast. I mean, when we say a veteran is a veteran is a veteran, we mean it. Um, a veteran's need is a veteran's need, no matter their age, where they served, how they served, when they served. So I would say that, that is, there's a deep appreciation and understanding of the changing face of, of veterans and that Canadians just respect and honour and want to make sh- to honour that service and that sacrifice and be there in, their, in that veteran's time of need. So uh, we certainly feel, I certainly see that that has changed for the, as the country has changed, as our missions have changed. Afghanistan was a big part of that, obviously. So I would answer that question saying, yes, the Canadians are keenly aware of the changing face of veterans. But, you know, I think that calls on all of us, though, realizing the ages of some of these people, that well, all of those people, I, sh- I should say, that were in World War II, for example, seeing their faces across the country today, that we, that we, that we make a commitment steadfast to carry their star- their stories forward as we pair them differently to stories uh, the pre- of the present and of current conflicts. What else would you say people can do uh, to help support veterans? Well, I mean, I would say in many respects, just do what you're doing. I mean, the outpouring of support I've seen from cenotaphs, from services across the country in every, pro- every province and region of the, con- the corner of the country, unbelievable turnout, unbelievable response, people pausing, on, on sides of roads, on highways and things to pay their respects, wearing poppies, donating if they can, just wanting to be part of the solution. When we say in this together for in the support of, the, of those that have served and are serving and their families, that, that everyone has a role to play, can play a role, and I think they're really trying to do it. So if they wish to give, I mean, Wounded Warriors Canada exists on the backs of the care, compassion, and generosity of Canadians. WoundedWarriors.ca is where our programs are at. If anyone listening is maybe struggling, maybe having a hard time with this week or this day, reach out for help. You're, you know, they are not, you're not alone. They're not alone. This is what we do. And we're here to serve. All right. Scott Maxwell, thank you so much for making the time for us today. Appreciate you coming on the show. Anytime. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being with us. We will have more from Remembrance Day ceremonies coming up a little bit later in the show. Right now, though, we are going to talk about bats. Not everybody likes bats, whether it's seeing them on TV or in films. They're not always portrayed as the nicest of creatures. Although, when you see them close up, maybe not close up in person, but when you see a close up photo or video of bats, they're really pretty cute, and they do a lot of good things. And that is part of the reason why the city of Port Moody is becoming bat-friendly and making that official. 
Joining us to talk more about this is Port Moody City Councillor Amy Lubick. Councillor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. We uh, don't often talk a lot about bats and about councils approving uh, applications uh, into uh, bat communities, uh, community bat programs. Uh, Port Moody has done this, though. Can you tell us a little bit about what led up to that? For sure, and I'm really excited about this. Um, this work came actually from our Environmental Protection Committee and also from the Brook Mountain Naturalist, which is a group that uh, does a lot of great work in the Tri-Cities. And um, they had a recommendation from the Environmental Protection Committee to become a bat-friendly city. And, and part of this is because there are a lot of different um, bat species that live in our community. And, you know, they're, they're part of our community. They contribute greatly to the ecosystem and pest management and all of those things. And, you know, when it's, Port Moody has been very concerned about the uh, climate and ecological crisis. And so taking care of the species that, that take care of us is extremely important to the city. And what does it mean then to actually be part of the BC Community Bat Program? Um, what my understanding of the program is that we are looking to um, preserve some of the habitats that the that the bats live in and understand that better, um, and create um, more bat friendly um, spaces. Like I know the Brook Mountain Naturalist has been doing a lot of work on bat condos. Um, as well as educating the public and, and the staff on all of the good things that bats contribute to our to our community. And do you think there is a bit of a, a misunderstanding when it comes to bats? I know not everybody likes bats. Uh, certainly you don't want them living in your house or anything like that. But is there, uh, maybe it's not a misunderstanding, but maybe a lack of, of understanding about how important they are to the ecosystem and to the environment? I think so, honestly. I think people just don't hear about all of the good ways that bats contribute to our community. You know, we hear bats are, well, I mean, the community doesn't, but I remember I grew up thinking, you know, bats are scary. <laughs> um, you know, that they're, um, that maybe, um, you know, associated with, with not the, with more scary and, and not the greatest things, but they, they're actually super, um, like I said, productive members of, of our community and really keep down uh, pest control and they, um, you know, are an integral part of the the ecosystems here. So I think there's just a lot more education that needs to be done. And I know that um, Port Moody and uh, Brook Mountain Naturalists in, general, in particular have been doing a lot of education work for people of all ages. And I think that that really helps people to embrace that in a different way and you know, I, like, I don't think anybody wants uh, creatures to be living in their attics, but um, that comes down to maintenance. And, you know, we can we can figure that out and we can work together so that bats are in the habitats that they want to be in. And we really don't have a, a problem with you know, bats in people's attics or homes. It's kind of more misunderstanding. And I think there's a lot of things that we can do to help along the way. And like I said, build up that, that positive spirit around that because they really do a lot in our community. And when we are, we're looking at that too, I understand that Port Moody and, and a lot of areas, but looking at this and specifically to Port Moody uh, is home to a lot of different bat species, including bats that are on the endangered species list. Yes, that's true. And, you know, I think that Port Moody is doing our part and we're trying to look at um, 
you know, what what species are are more endangered and which which species we need to protect uh, the most. Um, although we need to protect well, all of the different species because they do all work together. Um, and I think that it's also important that um, you know we continue to advocate for the province to upgrade the endangered species list and then the different ways that we can take care of all the different species that are um, in jeopardy in this time that we're all finding ourselves in. So I think there's a lot more work to do around advocacy for all the species that work together. Is there a cost associated with getting this certification or or taking part in this or becoming a bat-friendly city? Uh, Is there a cost that the city has to put up or or to to maintain that status? Um, I'll be honest, I can't remember from off the top of my head. However, I if there is, I believe it's minimal. Um, so I, I hesitate to, to say a particular cost, but I, it does fit in with a lot of the plans that we were already doing. So, you know, these programs, I think the education piece is probably the most, um, the education piece is probably the one that's going to cost some money, but it really, that's minimal costs as well, I believe. Sure. And I understand, too, as far as, and you mentioned this or touched on this, uh, that there are already, um, with um, with the, the group, the Burke Mountain Naturalist Groups, so they have been putting up bat boxes and, and educating people that way. So it sounds like this is just a way as well to kind of continue on that work and to get more attention paid to that work and, and letting people know why it's important. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, it really builds on a lot of the work that like I said, the Brook Mountain Naturalists are doing. It's it's great that this came from our Environmental Protection uh, Committee because they are, you know, so so integral to us understanding the different issues on the ground that the community is seeing. And at the same time, you know, as we are doing our climate action plan, you know, a lot of the the different initiatives that we are undertaking, like protecting the trees and um, our urban forestry strategy, that all plays into uh, protecting the bats. And I think that's all part of the, the education, the uplifting of the, of the understanding in the community. Are you hopeful that other communities or other cities and councils will follow this lead or, or do look at what Poor Moody is doing and also kind of become more bat-friendly cities? I do. You know, we are all, um, we're all in the same, you know, ecosystem um ecosystems don't know borders so you know the more that we can do together i think it's really important especially with our neighboring communities but all over the place and you know i think you know as we go forward sometimes you just sometimes things just aren't on your radar because you haven't thought of it it hasn't come up but it doesn't mean that once you don't know about it you don't care so i think that even just having that awareness out there that hey this is something you can do i think that might move um, move communities um, a little bit quicker because it isn't it isn't a big ask really. There's a lot of things that we can do that really don't um, that really aren't a lot to ask. I think of, of staff and of the community. All right, uh, Councillor Amy Lubick, thanks so much for joining us and for talking about this today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys uplifting the voices of that. 
Thanks so much for being with us. Well, we are going to take some time now to talk about a new book. It is called Our Father's Footsteps and timely talking about it today because it has a direct link to World War II. Joining me to talk about it is the author of this book, Don Levers. Don, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks very much, Hope, for contacting me. Well, last time we chatted, it was about your book, Loot for the Taking. Such an interesting story. But you have another book out, and very, very timely, given it being Remembrance Day. This one, Our Father's Footsteps, Stories of World War II Veterans, What If Moments. Tell us a bit about this. Well, yeah, the last time we talked was actually, I looked it up, July 2018. So talking about Loot for the Taking and uh, when I went uh, after doing that book, I was uh, looking at going towards Normandy, and and before I went, I met with uh, one of your colleagues in Edmonton here, Gord Steinke, and told him a little bit about my dad's story and that I was going to Normandy, and Gord said to me, it'll be great to walk in your dad's footsteps. Well, that started the whole ball rolling. So I had my dad's stories, but then I went in search of stories of other people uh, that I met along the way to tell me their their father's stories, what I call their what-if moments. And it sounds like, and just uh, looking at, at the picture on the front of the book, and we can get into that as well, and the stories uh, that you were able to get from people, uh, what, uh, what an amazing story. It was uh, the, the chance to talk to these people by the time I'd finished I feel that, you know, I could have sat around the kitchen table and had a uh, a glass of wine or a beer with them. They, they became somebody I got to know, and including uh, one story that I met a lady on the beaches of Normandy in 2019. I was going around telling everyone the project I was working on, and she reached out to me after we got back. She was from Hull, England. And uh, she told me her dad's story, so we shared that in the book, and also one of the, uh, another one of some of her uh, family members that were at Dunkirk. And this, I like the way that you've actually focused this book as well, and the fact, and that, that it revolves around the stories of, of four people of, that were volunteering. They served their countries during World War II, and and things that they had in common. And can you talk a little bit about some of the things, not giving the whole book away, but kind of some of the things that you discovered while you were doing this research? There was a couple of things. Number one, I wanted to do a book about ordinary, average guys. People like perhaps your father and great-grandfather or grandfathers and things like that, because a lot of young people today don't realize how lucky we are to to be here. And because my father survived a uh, bullet wound that uh, in his letter home said two inches higher and I would have stopped being a man, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. And that's kind of the same stories of these other men. And that's kind of what they had in common. Um, in my dad's case, when he jumped off the landing craft on D-Day, uh, the water was almost above his head. He was only five foot six. So each of these men suffered what I call a what-if moment. And I'm sure you've had your own what-if moments, Jill, that, uh, you know, one way or another could have been spelled disaster. Yeah, I think everybody, and when you, and when you put it out there, people will start thinking and looking, uh, looking back at their own lives for sure, and thinking about that. But one of the things about these guys is they lived it with it twenty four seven. One of the men who was also with my dad's regiment, uh, he was wounded twice. His name is Jack Hamilton. 
Um, and then on the 22nd of June, there was a, um, a heavy shell firing taking place on his battalion. He jumped into a slit trench, and uh, when he was laying there, he heard a loud thump behind him. When he, after the barrage was over, he lifted his head, looked around, and there was an unexploded 20-pound shell. Hmm. And yesterday I heard a story on one of the other uh, stations actually here in Edmonton, and this man talked about his father being a prisoner. He was Dutch. He was taken away to Germany to work in his factory, and they would make a habit of making every fifth or sixth shell um, so that it didn't explode. That might have been one of them. Wow, and it's just amazing when we hear those stories and and try and picture and imagine what it must have been like. And I understand, too, in writing this book, you did get a lot of help as far as family members giving you, uh, letting you look at letters and history books and things that must have just been absolutely invaluable when putting this story together. Absolutely. One of the ladies here in Edmonton, she gave me 100 letters and telegrams that came home from from England, from her from her father after he arrived there in 1942, including uh, a card that showed him being wounded, his telegrams to his mother, things like that that allowed me to give these men's voices. So I used that and their war diaries and memoirs to be able to not just tell the story of a of these men because their family history books allowed me to tell a little bit about who these men were before and after the war ordinary average guys and so then the war diaries from the regiments and their personal letters allowed me to actually give voices to them and and add some dialogue to hopefully make it more relatable to everyone that these men could be their grandfathers and how was that putting or or putting that dialogue in like you said to kind of bring them more to life and that but making sure it was dialogue that would be true to to what you knew about them and what you had learned about them through things like those letters and those journals i think the uh, biggest a couple of big compliments i got number one was from one of the last surviving members of the royal winnipeg rifles and he said you wrote it almost as if you were there that guy's name is Jim Parks. He's 98 years old now. And uh, he wrote it almost as if you were, you were there, and I wish it had gone on longer. Hmm. And then Marie Brown from England, she says, you've, you've captured the essence of my father. I can picture him sitting in the corner reading his newspaper. Um, when that bomb went off, or the, when that shell landed beside uh, Jack Hamilton, I had him swearing like I'm sure many of us would. And his daughter said, Nope, he wouldn't have sworn on that, even when that happened. So I, I adjusted that to make sure that I stayed true to who the people were. Uh, amazing that you were able to get that kind of feedback and make it so it was as true to their character as possible. And that, that was the important part to me because otherwise I'm just telling tales, but being able to uh, hear about uh, Johnny Nearingberg, the man who sent all the letters home, sitting around with his friends after the war and, and, and having playing cards on a Tuesday night in the kitchen and some of the stories that uh, were related to me by his daughter allowed me to, to lend that voice to him. Uh, unlike people like Ted Barris and David O'Keefe, some, a couple of great historians and authors, they had the privilege of interviewing hundreds if not thousands of veterans and we're losing them so I have to rely on these family history books and these letters and diaries to be able to do this.
Continuing uh, my conversation now with Don Levers. He is a Canadian author, and this is his third book, I believe. It is called Our Father's Footsteps. And again, this is taking a look at four men. They were amongst the millions of men and women from around the world serving in World War II. And the common thread, as Don mentioned just before the break, they all landed on Normandy's beaches on June 6, 1944. Don, I want wanted to ask you as well, because you mentioned the research and how great it was that family members were giving you bits of information and sharing with you very personal items. So how difficult was it to read and go through these hundreds of letters and these other personal effects and then have to decide what parts are going to go into the book and which parts did you have to leave out? Exactly. And, and the men themselves in the letters they sent home, they were restricted from what they could say. He didn't say that they went on this, what they were doing. He would say, we went on an exercise. And that's the le- that's sort of all he could say. He couldn't talk about where they were training or anything. So we had to do that. But the war diaries that I use, which are available for all of the regiments that landed on D-Day from Canada, um, they told another part of the story. The, the adjutant for the company would write out his notes at the end of the day, and they would go into the war diary uh, to talk where they were the 5th, 6th, 7th, and all the way through Normandy. So use, in, in some cases, I use those and, and the stories that the adjutant has told to add to Johnny's story. And you mentioned, too, that this kind of all started, it all got underway when you were on a bit of a fact-finding mission for yourself and your own story. And I know so many people have done that. And I wonder if it was more of a challenge in that it's one thing to go to Normandy, uh, to go to these places. Uh, I've gone to some of them. And, and if you've not done it, there there is something that when you're standing on those beaches and you're standing in those places, it's kind of an overwhelming feeling. But if you can't do that and you're reading a book like this or you're, you're learning more in trying to, to find out about the, the characters, how challenging was it for you to make sure and to try and bring that feeling to somebody who was reading the book? Well, that's exactly what you said. It's, it's one thing to stand there. I, I looked at going there for years, try to... Uh, to suggest to my dad that we go for the 40th anniversary and he had no desire. So going there and walking across that beach was a a moment that I'll never forget. And then before I left, I was given the nominal roles of the Royal Winnipeg rifles that included the names of all 3000 men of the regiment and showed when they were wounded, including my dad or, or taken prisoner or killed in action or in the case of, um, 58 of the Winnipeg Rifles, they were actually murdered. So when I went through that record and I found four names of men my dad helped escort back to the beach uh, when they were prisoner with some prisoners, two of those men were amongst the 58 that were murdered. And going to the Benny Sumeri Cemetery and seeing their headstones was probably one of the most emotional moments I've ever encountered because I realized that how close if my dad hadn't been wounded, he talked about two of these four guys, and it was like, wow, that was really close. Did you get all of the answers that you were looking for by going and, and taking this trip? Yes. Uh, I <laughs> Going there and, and seeing it, I, I haven't been, we've been through to all the way into Holland, uh, into the Leopold Canal where the uh, Winnipeg Rifles were, and there's some more steps I'd like to take. 
But one of the things I vowed to do after coming back uh, is that um, in, in the writing of the book is to encourage people to um, find out more about their family's military history and for young people to also realize that. So I vowed that I'm going to take my daughter and granddaughter for the 80th anniversary and we will go and I can show them, well, if he hadn't got any further than this, none of us would be here. So I think it's really important um, that the families learn more about that because 344 Canadians died on, on Normandy Beach alone. And in the Benny Samir Cemetery, there's over 2,000 um, men laid to rest there, most of them Canadians. And how many of those men never became fathers? So I think it's important and imperative for us to realize that these guys laid it all on line for us. Oh, absolutely. And especially today to do that. Well, every day, but we're spending a bit more time doing that today. Uh, Don, I know you have a website. And if people are interested in getting the book, learning more about the book, how can they do that? I do have a website. It's um, donleversbooks.com. And that talks about uh, my recently released Ogopogo book, the second one in the series, and uh, also Loot for the Taking and Our Father's Footsteps. It has a small video trailer on it, a book trailer. And then most of the books in the Lower Mainland, unfortunately, I have to go through Amazon. But if anyone's interested and they want to uh, get a signed copy for somebody for Christmas, uh, unfortunately, the mail costs $16 to send out a single book in Canada. Uh, but if, some, if anybody would be interested, the total price of a book is usually around forty three ninety five, including taxes. Uh, so I'll sell the book for six twenty five, dollars uh, 15 for freight. I'll do it for $40 and, and send it right to their home. And if they want to contact me at uh, uh, Footsteps at gmail.com, I'd be happy to uh, work back and forth with them. And also, if anyone has stories out there that they'd like to share that are in the basement or in the attic, please reach out to me. I've been hearing from people, and, and there's more stories to tell that are hidden away. And, uh, you know, I was with Ted Barris on, on stage at Festival Place the other night, and, and he said after I gave my presentation, he says, we forgot to tell you, that's probably only volume one. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we'll, we'll be able to do another one. All right. Well, it sounds uh, like some just uh, some great stories uh, in the book. We'll leave it there for now. Don, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Jill. It was a pleasure as always, and uh, hopefully it won't be three years till the next time. (laughs) All right. Sounds good.